Thank you all so much for coming. As you heard earlier, today is uh, kicking off our Advent season for this year. And so we're also wrapping up our series in Colossians. So this will, today will serve as a transition. We'll be wrapping up Colossians, heading into the Advent season. There are great uh, lessons in the, the coming weeks focused around Advent that I'm really excited about. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know or need a refresher, remember the, so the Advent season, we call it that, is because for many Christians all over the world, um, we follow a liturgical calendar, a calendar that remembers uh, aspects of the Christian faith, like throughout the calendar. And what we remember in this Advent season is the impending arrival of Jesus uh, to earth. And so these are the days leading up to Christmas. So, um, so I'm very thankful to be able to do that all uh, this season with you. Uh, today, though, as part of wrapping up our series in Colossians, there is uh, a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses towards the end of Colossians uh, as he's uh, constructing his closing thoughts. And that, will, that phrase will be our main focus for today. So here's how Colossians, uh, to how it's uh, wrapping up. It says, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well, that God will open a door, uh, a door to us, a door for the word, uh, that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. So that is the phrase that we will focus on. What does it mean? What is Paul talking about when he's talking about the mystery of Christ? And so there are probably a lot of uh, preconceived ideas that you bring when you even think about the phrase, like to use the word mystery to describe what's going on. So for example, um, my daughter, Anna, right before church started, asked me, uh, Daddy, what are you going to preach about today? And I said, the mystery of Christ. And she said, well, I have a mystery about why my toe is hurting. So you get the idea that, right, like mystery is like, oh, it is, uh, it's an unsolved puzzle. Uh, in my life. And even to call it an unsolved mystery, right, that's redundant. Really, we mean mystery, because usually the way we use that language, the, the, at the core of a mystery is that it is unsolved. Um, but that is, that's not really how, um, the, how the Apostle Paul uses it uh, in this context, right? But even, even if yours is not about why your toe is hurting, you all have your own ways of thinking about like, oh, what are, what are mysteries? And in your case, I know you're thinking about all of the mysteries, uh, the like murder mysteries that are saturate our culture because you are creating a demand for it, right? Those are the mysteries that you know how to solve and that you think about is, hey, that one celebrity, did they murder someone? And how do you, who did that? And uh, I would like 50 episodes to really dive deep into all the dynamics of that, right? These are like, the again, the idea is like, okay, so a mystery is something that uh, is deeply puzzling uh, and it needs to be uncovered. Um, and you may even think too, they're like, okay, so if Paul is talking about the mystery of Christ, then you may think like, oh, then it's talking about something about Christ that is like, a, it's a puzzle. It's very hard to understand. And that could show up uh, in a variety of ways. So like sometimes interpreters like will read this, uh, this phrase the way Paul uses it and they'll say, oh, like the, you know, you know what the mystery of Christ is? It's the Trinity. I don't understand 
that? Like, how does that work? And you'll diagram it all out and it still doesn't make sense. And so that, like, they'll say that's what it is. Uh, or even in Advent season, right, you would say, oh, the mystery of Christ really is it's the incarnation. It's how did God become human, right? And that, that, you know, you could say, like, that, that's something that's deeply mysterious. Uh, I would say, like, the, one of the deepest mysteries of Christ is how did Jesus get those abs 2,000 years <laughs> before pre-workout supplements existed. This has uh, confused scholars for centuries. Um, uh, in this case, right, like again, what we're saying is like, oh, okay, so a mystery is something that's very hard to understand. I would actually argue there's, there's an irony here where when the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery of Christ in Colossians, he means something very specific. Not only does he mean something very specific, it's something that's actually easy to understand, but extremely difficult to actually do, like to live out. And that is what we will be uh, unpacking today. So one helpful way to think through this is how does Paul use that phrase throughout the letter to Colossians? Because that's not the, you know, towards the end is not the only time he mentions it. In fact, he mentions it towards the beginning. And here's how he talks about it. He says, I became the church's minister according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to God's saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so now you're beginning to pick up on some themes here, right? Something that was previously hidden, now was revealed. Something about, uh, something about being revealed to Gentiles, so the non-Jewish people. Um, and then there, another way to, that this can be very helpful is uh, if you think about the fact that Ephesians, a different letter uh, that is attributed to the Apostle Paul, in many ways is an expansion of the letter to Colossians. So there are many parallel themes. There are themes that are fleshed out a little more in Ephesians than Colossians. There are several um, pairs like that in the New Testament. So for example, in many ways, Romans is an expansion of Galatians and uh, Second Peter is an expansion of Jude, right? So when you're interpreting those, it might help sometimes to do a little compare and contrast. And so in Ephesians, uh, uh, this actually fleshes this out even more. It's so they, they use the key phrases under discussion where it says, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise, uh, in, the promise in Christ Jesus. Okay. That like straight up defines it for us. The mystery is the inclusion of Gentiles into God's family. And you could think, you could look at that and be like, okay, well, what's so mysterious about that? Uh, that's basically the, the paradigm that I operate under. And I also think that as part of it seeming obvious to you is, you know, you have uh, 2,000 years of hindsight uh, to look back on that to say that it was obvious. And you may be, even when you read the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, you would say, well, it's obvious even in there that this is where the story was headed. And it's also very easy to, when uh, you point out, when one is to point out like how hard it has been over the millennia for God's family, the church, to grasp that truth, you could just attribute it to be like, well, they were very racist back then. That's why it was so hard, right? 
right? That's the idea. And uh, I want to disabuse you of that perspective. So what I think uh, it would be helpful to do is actually um, get some context on why this, uh, this truth, this mystery, might have been so difficult for God's people to grasp at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Because once you, once you understand like, the nature of this conflict, you will see it's actually one of the central conflicts. Like how can we incorporate, integrate both Jews and Gentiles into God's family? It runs through the entire New Testament. It's a pressing concern, perhaps the pressing concern across so many letters um, that, that comprise our New Testament today. So uh, first, let's think about like, okay, what, uh, you know, especially in the context of Colossians, how might... Uh, a Jewish person who is a follower of Jesus in Paul's context have thought about some of those core things that defined their Jewishness, that like made them like really think these are, these are the marks that identify me as a Jewish person, a Jewish follower of Jesus, distinct from the Gentile world around me. So if you're trying to think of like, oh, what are, what are those like key boundary markers that, that can delineate someone with that identity. Well, in those days, you could think of like keeping kosher laws, observing the Sabbath, being circumcised. And you can, uh, you know, it, I want to help you appreciate how, uh, how serious um, that, uh, you know, being a part of the community and delineating yourself that way could have been. So this is from Exodus, from the Torah, from the, the law for Israel, where, where it says, therefore the Israelites shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign forever between me and the Israelites that in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day God rested and was refreshed. These are, this is a strong language, eternal covenant, lasting forever, right? So if you, were a follower of Je- for, or if you were a follower of God in the centuries prior to Jesus, you could reasonably assume that to, ha- like to be a part of God's family, these were eternal markers of what it means. Um, and then another example uh, that here with circumcision, right? So the same part of the Torah, uh, it says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me And your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Okay? Everlasting. So now when you say in retrospect, oh yeah, if you were to say things like that, those were shadows of things to come. That was never intended to be forever. Uh, that's hard to square with this, right? It's hard to square with the expectation that many Jewish people in Jesus' community um, would have been thinking. Um, and then when you get even into Jesus' own life, you, you can see how perhaps you have taken for granted how much like including Gentiles was like a part of Jesus' agenda. Um, and I, I want to highlight an example of a key passage that causes you to have to like think carefully through like, well, what was Jesus's uh, perspective on Gentile inclusion? So this is a story um, from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is with his apostles and he has an interaction with a Canaanite woman whose daughter is sick. Okay, so here's how the Gospel of Matthew describes it. Uh, It says, just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. So the way this story frames it, this Canaanite woman is outside of the family of Israel. 
Okay, so this is Jesus' response. But, but he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. So you see a hard delineation between this in-group and out-group. And then Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his response to this woman, okay? Um, then the way the dialogue continues, it says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. If you're following the analogy in this case, the, the house of Israel would be the children and then the outsiders, that would be the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. All right. Now, that's actually like a twist, right? There's a dramatic story. And I know you're probably thinking, wait a second. Hey, can we do a lesson just on that? That's very confusing. To which I would say, focus. We've got enough problems that we need to work on here. This is a lesson for another time. The point here that I'm showing is like, clearly, um, one could look at Jesus's ministry and even see like, where did he spend his time in life and say, was Jesus like really only uh, primarily uh, about a, like a Jewish ministry? Like was that his focus? The, um, uh, once you are, you know, become aware that that could be a possibility, I think other aspects of Jesus's ministry, I think come into simultaneously like clearer focus and more confusing focus. So, uh, so for example, there are many parables uh, that Jesus tells that many interpreters, over the centuries have assumed were about Gentiles. They were about like the Jewish response to Jesus, largely the idea is the Jewish rejection of Jesus, and then therefore the inclusion of Gentiles as a result. So uh, one famous example is like, you'll see, for example, in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, uh, there's this uh, setup where uh, there are workers uh, in the vineyard who have been working all day from the beginning, and they're given a wage uh, by the owner of the vineyard. And then there are workers who come uh, toward, more towards the end of the day, but they get paid the same wage as the people who came towards the beginning. And the people who were there from the beginning, they're very upset. They think that it's unfair that the people who came later in the day had been granted uh, the same wage. Again, a, a common way, a surprisingly common way to interpret this is like, oh, the workers who came later in the day, they're the Gentiles, and the, the Jews are resentful of this situation. Um, the uh, Bible scholar A.J. Levine, Amy Jill Levine, uh, who's a, a friend of Spark as well, I think has done a really good job of highlighting in a parable like this and in other parables how we put our own lens of like, oh, this must be about Gentiles and sometimes even like Gentiles replacing Jews as God's people. Uh, we do it like so matter-of-factly. We don't even notice. But that is a, that's an, a terrible and harmful and erroneous interpretation of parables like this. Um, there, it shows up in other ways too. There is the, the parable of the two sons where... where um, there's a father, asks two sons to do something. The first son is like, uh, sure, I'll do it, and then doesn't. The second son is like, I don't want to do that, but then eventually does. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the first one is, is the, uh, Jews, and then the second one is Gentiles, and it's all about uh, replacement. There is the parable of the wicked tenants. So this is a story where there's um, uh, an owner of a land who leaves uh, tenants 
uh, in his place to take care of the land, and then the, the tenants uh, reject everyone that the landowner sends uh, to help out with the land because the tenants are like, we can just like seize this property for ourselves. Then the, the uh, landowner sends his son and says like, surely they will respect my son. And then they kill the son. Uh, and then the, the, the parable asks like, how do, you, you know, how do you think the landowner will treat those tenants when he comes back? And again, with surprising volume, a common interpretation, yeah, this is, this is about the Jewish rejection of Jesus and, uh, and, them, uh, and then the Gentiles coming in um, who, will, who are the people in the parable who will be given that land uh, from the, the wicked tenants. There's also um, the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? There's the son who uh, takes his inheritance uh, and leaves, wastes it all, but, it, but repents and comes back and is granted a beautiful, full welcome back into the family. But the older son, who was there all along, a good member of the family, is resentful. And again, we layer this on. Do you get the idea? Over and over and over, we do this. In reality, if you were to like, try to figure out like, what concerns would actually have been pressing to the the audience that Jesus spoke these parables to. Gentiles aren't really on the radar. This is about, like when you're talking about a group that is shockingly unresponsive to Jesus's teaching and a group that is more, uh, more open because they were on the fringes, we're talking about the like religious political elite establishment versus the people on the margins of society. That is like the great ironic reversal that Jesus is talking about. You're not going to learn necessarily, at least explicitly, about how to think about Gentiles or how Jesus thought about Gentiles from that context. So you get this, like, you know, th this theme the, all the way perhaps even up through Jesus's life and his teachings that um, you, know, you can think of Jesus as primarily concerned with being a reformer within uh, within the house of Israel. And you get to this point where after Jesus's ministry, when he dies and is resurrected, you have people like the apostle Paul uh, in sharp contrast saying things like, uh, well, so remember too, that this is the apostle Paul saying this as a uh, theologically trained, proud, unapologetically Jewish Pharisee uh, saying in Christ you were also circumcised. So he's saying this to an audience of both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. With a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this, you know, if you're uh, again, without a lot of context, you might read that and think, oh, wow, like, is Paul saying that we've basically replaced uh, circumcision and uh, Sabbath keeping as parts of uh, what it means to be in God's family, even though I thought those things were eternal? Uh, is he just straight up replacing them? And, you know, that concern is all the more highlighted when Paul says that the implication of baptism being now the thing that marks you out as part of God's family, not whether you've been circumcised or not, not whether you keep kosher or not. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, the kosher stuff, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So 
without, again, without context, you could be like, what is going on that uh, where the Apostle Paul thinks he can say stuff like that, which seems to be in such sharp contrast with how the story seemed to be headed before Jesus and even in Jesus' own ministry. The, uh, if you're bringing a critical eye to the text, it's reasonable to wonder like, where on earth Paul got this radical perspective from. Um, and then, then you can see, like, there's actually been, uh, especially in the last couple hundred years, um, this, this perspective that really does say that, well, like Paul just, he, he invented that, like that aspect of uh, Christianity, which, uh, you know, if true, you would say is deeply ironic since, like, much of the church globally, like most people or perhaps all in this room, are Gentiles who are not part of the, the initial group of uh, Jesus's followers who, who were all Jewish. Um, there, there are scholars who have, like, laid out this perspective to say, look, Jesus was just a first century Palestinian Jewish reform prophet trying to reform the house of Israel. Uh, and this whole thing about Gentile inclusion was manufactured by the Apostle Paul after the fact. And what they're doing is, is uh, playing on and diving deeper, exploiting this contrast that we've been highlighting so far. Now, of course, I would say this overstates the dichotomy between Jesus's concerns and Paul's concerns. And, um, and I would say, you know, I, I would not say Paul is the founder uh, of Christianity. And there are many uh, great scholars who've also refuted that perspective to say, like, one of the best ways we can know whether Paul invented these things is look at all of the times he claims that he is merely carrying on or continuing this message that other followers of Jesus, including people in Jesus' inner circle, uh, were preaching from the beginning, right? So there's a lot to, there's a lot to flesh out there. Um, this uh, area of scholarship also does, uh, does you know, a really good job of highlighting uh, this deep irony that we are talking about, where um, like all of the first Christians were Jewish followers of Jesus. Um, there is a Bible scholar, Jimmy Dunn, who, um, when he talks about the origins of the, the Christian movement, uh, one of the things he breaks down is how you could get from uh, around 30 CE, so around the time of Jesus's death, uh, the Jesus movement could be comprised entirely of Jewish people. But just in the span of decades, so towards the end of the first century, it looks like the Jesus movement was comprised almost entirely or predominantly of Gentile followers of Jesus. That happened so fast and so early in church history that by the time you get to the second century, you have early church fathers saying things like going on uh, like polemical tirades against Judaism or against Jewish people. Like Justin Martyr is a second century church father who would say things like, um, the old law is physical and not spiritual. It was a shadow now replaced, right? The, that's the idea there that uh, has been uh, replaced by something like deeper, uh, the deeper truth that God was going after all along. And there is, there is a condemnation of Jewish people in those kinds of writings to say, um, look at them for not understanding this obvious truth. And uh, I, you know, I wish I could say that was just uh, th that was just some early church fathers. But I think you know um, from many aspects of like of church history that this problem, like this idea of uh, 
judging the Jewish people in Jesus' day for their rejection of Jesus, uh, and then like reading back to the Old Testament and looking at it as if it was always meant to be obsolete, that it was never part of like God's true desire or revelation for how the, the world should be, um, really uh, takes hold and often grows uh, throughout church history. By the time you get to like... Um, Around the Protestant Reformation even, you have uh, great hallowed reformers like Martin Luther who will go on very detailed, intense diatribes against the Jewish people. Oh, I see by the reaction, some of y'all didn't know that your boy Luther wrote a book like that with that title. Hey, I have a, a, a spoiler for you. The title does in fact tell you everything that that, uh, that treatise is about. Um, it is, and if you're reading that thinking like, wow, so German uh, reformer Martin Luther wrote a book like that, I wonder if that was a source of inspiration for, yes, the answer is yes, whoever you're thinking of, the answer is yes. Like that's the idea, like how much power these kinds of perspectives have had throughout church history. This is also as a side note too, because of just the, the abrasiveness of a work like this, um, the teaching team we often have discussions, or sometimes we've had discussions around like um, books in your library that you don't agree with but they are, you know, have historical significance. And like, you know, whether you would keep them, do you feel like you need to like apologize for them or have caveats? And like, what about when they're like books that you used to believe, like do you just get rid of them when you no longer hold those beliefs? And I uh, am very much on the side of you let the library be what it is. And uh, it's, you know, a, a story of like perhaps your own intellectual journey and the variety of thoughts and perspectives that exist in the world. Uh, but even so, this, this is the one one book, like over the years, that I, I uh, I've been a little too afraid to put it on uh, my uh, put it up in my library. There's a phrase uh, in Urdu and Hindi called "logya kahenge," like what will people say? Is this preoccupation? Like, a, like I I don't want to go there uh, because of what what the optics are. And I'm aware too, like when someone who looks like me has a book like that on their shelves, like that's not a good look. So that's not it's not on my bookshelf. I have a digital PDF of it in my computer. Uh, that's how I keep it. But, um, but you get the idea, right? Like there is, there clearly, um, sometimes seemingly, so many Christians have run in this ironic direction where we've become increasingly detached from the Jewish roots of the Jesus movement, um, and we've kind of leaned into this dichotomy. So even if you don't, you don't uh, consciously espouse the beliefs in that kind of book, we often like subconsciously or maybe consciously, you may live in a world where you forget that, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus was Jewish. That's right. Like I've had literal conversations with people from a variety of perspectives. are like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he, he was. Um, because like, you know, perhaps Jesus's Jewishness doesn't like really factor uh, into your understanding of him. So, you know, clearly this situation, this version of the history that I've just told you is not how Jesus wanted it to be. Um, and, you know, you could, you could then ask yourself, like, is, like, you know, so what, what would Jesus's perspective be uh, about Gentiles and Gentile inclusion? And here, I think, Jesus's actions 
uh, speak very loudly for all of us that we can run with uh, even until today. So remember, think about how Jesus interacted with the Canaanite woman and her daughter that we just talked about. But also, not uh, not only that, uh, Jesus healed and praised Samaritans um, for, uh, for their faith, and he even told parables in which they were heroes. Um, he even uh, tells, uh, or the, the Gospels tell a story of how um, Jesus healed uh, a, a, somebody who belonged to the Roman centurion, so literally an oppressor of Israel. This is Jesus, um, you know, like t- taking time to marvel at the faith of this person who would have been Israel's enemy. It's like the Gospels are going out of their way to tell us how much Jesus went out of his way to show how far God's love is actually willing to go. And there's, uh, there are other stories too where Jesus takes time even during Passover week, the last week of his life, execution is on his mind, and he takes time to preach to Greeks who were interested in keeping the law. And, and of course, uh, it's obvious from the book of Acts that um, the message that the disciples picked up on about the role of Gentiles in, uh, in God's family, as hard as it was for them to implement, was that they were a part of God's family now because Jesus. So if you had to like, synthesize what is the, the essence of the mystery of Christ in um, uh, it, it, the way Paul talks about it in Colossians, I would say this. So the mystery of Gentile inclusion was two big things. One is that it's not something we could have just deduced from the Old Testament. This was not something that uh, interpreters in Jesus' day were like logically concluding, oh yes, like one day um, the boundary markers of what it means to be in God's family are going to change. This is something that their encounter with the resurrected Jesus caused them to do, to rethink where they thought God's story was headed. And the other part of it, too, is nevertheless, even if it was a plot twist in the story God was telling, uh, it was part of God's plan all along revealed in Jesus. So when you do go back to the Old Testament or other parts of the New Testament, you're like, but, but to me, it seems so clear that God has a heart for expanding God's family and being multinational. That's great. You should. Just remember, though, that the leap that it took you to get there was a radical encounter with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? Don't take that for granted in the process. And, you know, while you can look at, too, there's like another aspect of this where you can look at the last two millennia of church history and say that Paul's hope as he talks about in, Col- in, in Colossians, of Jewish and Gentile or multinational harmony has largely gone unfulfilled. When you think about the relationship between uh, many Christians and many Jewish people today, um, to that concern, uh, I would say uh, a couple things there too. One is that from the beginning, there have always been and there always will be uh, followers of Jesus who are Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free, gay or straight, who are doing the hard, thankless work of integrating God's family, whether we see them or not, whether history writes about them or not, and even whether we stifle their voices or not. God sees them, God hears them, their works are written on God's heart. So that is one important aspect of this history that we've been telling. 
Lastly, uh, I want to kind of shift us to an implication that I really enjoy uh, with this kind of message that comes out in the Advent season and towards the the beginning of the Advent season in particular. Because um, as we talked about earlier in the prayer, the... um, The Advent season is a great time to reflect on this precise hope that the Apostle Paul had. Um, Advent texts, like so, like for those of you who follow liturgical calendars, often different like church bodies will have different texts to focus on uh, at different parts of the liturgical calendar. And uh, for a lot of traditions, the texts that are relevant for today, the beginning of Advent season, start from a place of acknowledging the darkness and despair that God's people would have felt in the time before Jesus was born. So the idea being, um, you know, Israel, God's people, although they do live in the land of Israel, they feel like foreigners in their own home. They are treated uh, as an oppressed group of people by foreign oppressors, by the, by the Roman Empire. And there are questions during that time, of, and when you read that literature of like, what could it even look like for, uh, for God to rescue them from this kind of exile, from this kind of despair. There are these solemn reflections of, um, you know, have, have we as God's people sinned so much that our relationships are fundamentally broken? And that is where the, the nativity story, like the story of Jesus' birth enters. It is to say God is doing something big God is on the move in a way that is entirely unexpected. Uh, It is that, you know, God is uh, saying that nothing is so broken and no relationship is so estranged that God can't overcome it in surprising ways. Um, there is, uh, you know, so like if you think about like the common nativity scene, this is one like a common one you can find online. Um, and and uh, if you're if you've been a spark for a while, you might think, all right, this is a setup. Uh, he's going to explain all the things that are unbiblical about uh, that nativity scene. I'm not actually uh, going to do that. Although uh, um, Pastor Danielle has done some great uh, Advent lessons over the years that have done a really good job of pointing out like what aspects of it are biblical and not, what aspects are helpful theologically, and which ones are not. So you can check those out. I actually wanted to lean into this like collage or hodgepodge of things that end up in in our nativity scenes to actually point out like, you know, implications that uh, I very much love and uh, are, uh, would be in agreement <clears throat> with the tradition that the Apostle Paul is laying out. So uh, when we think about just the, like, the radical kind of inclusion Jesus was preaching, you can think of this. Like, there are, like the main gospel traditions around Jesus' birth come from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. They're very different. Uh, I would argue it seems like the two writers are drawing from entirely different uh, traditions altogether. So there is, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, there are Jewish uh, shepherds who are present, uh, you know, for, uh, at the time of Jesus's like birth and, uh, and early childhood. And this is, represents like the humility that Jesus was born into. And that's con- contrasted with, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are rich Persian astrologers, so not Jewish people, and they're rich, we can tell, by the gifts that they bring baby Jesus. 
um, who have come to recognize and worship Jesus as king. And so, you know, even though one gospel does not share these two accounts, I think mashing them together actually does a good job of highlighting just how radical and wide the pull of Jesus was back then and still is today. Um, there's another aspect of it too. There's, so it's not only humans uh, that are estranged from God and now uh, being reunited in Jesus, it's animals as well. So the ox and donkey are a huge part of so many nativity scenes. It's not in the gospel accounts at all. It actually shows up in what scholars call um, pseudo-gospels or proto-gospels because they're talking about, um, or, sorry, infancy gospels. They're talking about like Jesus's birth in particular. This tradition actually looks like it comes from uh, a, an alleged gospel writing like um, several hundred years uh, after Jesus's time. But again, and the text says like, oh, the ox and the donkey, they came to worship baby Jesus. And like, you know, did that actually happen? I don't know, but I love the idea. I think that's right. I think that God, the, the reach, the breadth that God is going for in Jesus is to reconcile all things to God's self. Not just people, but creation as well. Every living thing and every non-living thing, God is remaking the entire universe towards this love and peace that is embodied in baby Jesus. And speaking of baby Jesus, my favorite part of diversity that is reflected in this message is you could have a white baby Jesus being visited and worshipped by a dark-skinned uh, foreigner who is coming. to. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? It's from uh, Racism chapter 1, verse 1. That's how, you know, it's just... It's amazing. This is, um, this is how just like radically uh, inclusive this picture is. The, um, the way Paul talks about it uh, in another letter that fleshes this theme out more, I think is significant for us just to, to wrap things up. Uh, so in Romans chapter 16, Paul also talks about this mystery in Christ, uh, this very same theme that we've been talking about, where in particular, he, you know, he highlights the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, just like we've been talking about, is now disclosed and is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God. And here's the implication that he lays out very simply in Romans itself. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Easy to understand, extremely difficult to do. This means if you are going to live out what it means for Jesus to have accepted you, that means you think about, okay, what are all the dumb things that I said and did and believed when Jesus accepted me? What were all of the things, the hypocritical things that I did? Um, what were all of the things that I carried shame and guilt about that perhaps I carry shame and guilt about to this day? What is about all that stuff about you that no one else knows but God? So you think about those things and you think, but Jesus accepted me anyway. And now you have to extend that to everyone else. Go and do likewise. When we live out Jesus uh, welcoming everyone, that is part of our tradition that Jesus established himself where um, we come together around Jesus's body and blood uh, and we remember what it really means to be radically welcomed and radically welcoming to others. 
The tradition goes for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.